Thessalonians, and I'm going to invite you, if you're able to, to stand with me for the reading of Scripture. We're in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 18. About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark, for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not sleep like the rest but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Now, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Pastor Kate. Good morning, everyone. My name's Lane. I'm one of the pastors here. Apparently, today's a big day. Something cool going on, I guess. Uh, Something about the Chicago Bulls and the the Ducks. I don't know. They're they're doing a sport thing. It's going to be great. if you haven't noticed while I've been here, sports is not really my thing. I played sports in high school. I enjoyed watching them uh, with my friends, but I'm not really like into it. Uh, my wife is really into sports. Anyone else have a spouse that's really into sports, but you're not? Come on, ladies. Is that a thing? I can join you with that. My nerddom energy has been focused elsewhere. Uh, anyway, uh, today we're going to be closing out our series on prayer. But the hope is that we are not going to be setting aside our commitment to prayer but rather that right now we would lean in. I want to focus on this phrase that Paul writes in this passage. He says, pray constantly. Pray constantly. During this series, we've taken a look at what prayer is. We've looked at fasting. And last week, Pastor Sunshine shared a bit about this exchange that takes place in prayer. And today, we're, we're going to unpack the importance of constantly coming back to that well to drink, the need to again and again be replenished and renewed by the presence of God. As we step into the Lenten season this Wednesday, the invitation will be that we continue 
to be a people who pray because prayer changes everything. Now, prayer doesn't always change the circumstances the way that I would want them to be changed, but prayer, if I'm faithful to show up to it, changes everything in me. Let's pray. Lord, as we sit before your word this morning, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would descend on the hearts and minds of everyone in this room, that you would speak to us, that we would be transformed in the knowing you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's provide a little context for the passage that Pastor Kate just read. Um, This is thought to have been one of the earliest uh, of the Apostle Paul's letters that he wrote to Christians living in specifically the city called Thessalonica. Thessalonica was one of the cities that Paul and his buddy Silas visited on one of his missionary journeys. And while they were there, they helped launch the first Christian church in this town. Thessalonica was a Greco-Roman city. It was a melting pot of Jews and Greeks and Romans. And one thing that all of these different people groups had in common was that they did not like Christians. To the Jews, Christians were these fringe cultists who were convoluting Judaism with idolatry. And to the Romans, this allegiance to Jesus over Caesar was potentially a politically dangerous situation. So there was likely a lot of persecution happening for the church at this time that Paul's writing this letter. Anyone that would uh, consider themselves a Christian, identify as a Christian, would be ostracized socially, and they'd be isolated and cut off economically. Friends that people had for years would likely have stopped doing business with them or associating with them altogether. And anyone who proclaimed Jesus as Lord would have found themselves on this like government watch list for insurrection and rebellion. So Paul is writing to this church, wanting to encourage them to keep the faith. Because persecution can be really hard, and he's asking them not to give up. Paul writes about the times of Jesus' return. Earlier in this letter, Paul writes that Jesus is going to return for his followers and that his followers will meet him in the clouds. You know, this phrasing is actually borrowed from Roman military rhetoric, and this phrase was used specifically when a great general or a hero would arrive at a city. The subjects would go out gates to meet that warrior or that general and then escort them back into the walls of the city. This is a comparison to how we will meet the Lord and usher him back into the earth to restore and resurrect a new creation. So Paul is kind of drawing this comparison ironically, right? He's comparing, he's conveying this idea that the, that the, the power that Rome parades around is nothing compared to the power of Christ's glory. In fact, in verse 3 of this chapter, Paul writes, When they say peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So peace and security, this was a Roman platitude that went along with this thing called the Roman gospel, which was Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. Roman peace was achieved by way of the sword. See, Rome saw it as their sacred duty to civilize the barbaric lands around them. But Paul writes that Jesus will come like a thief in the night. But that Christians don't need to fear this because we're children of the day, that we're children of light. And he writes this, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. So Paul's Paul's basically telling them that although the boot of Roman oppression is on their necks, 
that the Lord they serve makes that power look insignificant, and that justice is in the hands of Jesus, who loves them deeply. And so they don't need to worry. They just need to continue living in the way that Christ has called them to live. In verse 14, he says, And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone else, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, pray constantly, and give thanks in everything. Paul is describing a life that is baptized in prayer. How are they to posture themselves in light of persecution and isolation? There to be people who rejoice always, pray constantly, and give thanks in everything. Now, I know there are some people who believe that being a Christian is really difficult here. And if you have that opinion, I don't want to dismiss your experience. But compared to what the early church had to deal with, compared to what millions of Christians all over the globe have to deal with every day, any persecution that we face here will pale in comparison. And here's the thing. Can I get a little sassy for a moment? Can I get sassy? We need to stop being surprised when our government does something that we feel violates the values of the kingdom of heaven. It's going to. Because it's not the kingdom of heaven. Look, I love living here. I would not want to live anywhere else. I don't hate the U.S. I love my country. But it's not my true home. Not really. It doesn't hold my spiritual papers. My citizenship is in a higher place. It's in heaven. And no matter how righteous or morally synchronistic any world government may seem to be, it's still a world government. And it's clear that the early church was never deceived into thinking that the kingdom of heaven would come via governmental influence and authority. No, the way of the kingdom is a thief in the night. Subversive power. And Paul knew this, so when he told the church in Thessalonica that they should show up in their communities, he, he told them to, to be devoted to one another in love, to keep doing good, and to baptize their lives in prayer. That was their way of resistance. We actively serve and contend for the flourishing of the communities for which we've been sent into exile, right? That's one of our values, loving service. But we never bow to its idols, Jesus loved and served people, but he never trusted the government, even if he showed civility towards it. And that's what I love about being a Christian. It doesn't matter if my government does everything I love or everything I hate, because my marching orders are the same. My allegiance is to a king set above the kingdoms of this world. And so I live as a citizen of that kingdom, no matter what my earthly kingdom is doing. We Christians, we're supposed to be awake to a different kind of struggle. We should be able to lift the curtain of geopolitical turmoil and see that it is the evil one who is pulling the strings. And so we're not called to be people of worldly power, but rather people of divine prayer, bringing that kingdom of heaven to bear wherever I set my feet. That doesn't mean we don't run for office or work in politics or anything like that. It just means that we don't trust it. 
to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Sometimes we like to get really caught up in like the signs of the end times, right? Oh, we're living in the last days. It's, it's the end times. It's happening. That's fine. But listen, a vast majority of the early church thought that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. We don't need to talk about this book that came out, right? 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Any of you, any of you remember this book? <laughs> We're a little late on that one. Look, Paul writes at the beginning of this chapter, we don't need to write anything to, any, anything to you about the times in which Jesus is coming back. The gist of this chapter is no one knows, so don't worry about it. Uphold one another in love, do good to the people around you, and pray all the time. Guess what? Those marching orders are the same whether Jesus is coming back in an hour or in 500 years. Uphold one another in love. Do good to the people around you and pray constantly. We don't need to be paranoid searching the skies for the signs of Christ's return. He'll come back. I promise he will. When he does, we should be doing what he asks us to do. Tim Mackey wrote this about this chapter of Thessalonians. He's a theologian. Followers of King Jesus should live in the present as if that future day is already here. Despite the nighttime of human evil around them, they should stay sober and awake as the light of God's kingdom dawns on the earth as it is in heaven. Friends, being a disciple of Jesus will always be countercultural, always be a set-apart way of life, no matter the culture, no matter the political leaning of my country. There is a spiritual war going on above the kingdoms of this earth. And we have been conscripted to join that fight, to contend for the goodness of God in a world full of sin. Paul writes in another letter in Ephesians, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of, the, of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Paul's articulating in this chapter here in Thessalonians, that we are not to be drunk or asleep, but rather sober-minded and awake. And he writes that we should warn each other not to be idle. <laughs> Don't check out. Don't act like there's not something going on around you. There is a war waging around you that you need to show up to. And Paul knows that if we're going to be effective in this war, in this conflict of spiritual realms, that we need to be people who pray constantly. So that they are, as he writes in verse 6, awake and self-controlled. Awake and self-controlled. That, that, that implies discipline. And like we've seen throughout this series, prayer changes us. I'm going to show you a few graphics to kind of point to where we are. Here's the story that we find ourselves in. In this cosmic creation of heaven and earth, Humans were tasked with ruling the earth on behalf of God. But we were deceived by the serpent into believing that we could discern for ourselves, apart from him, what is good and what is evil. And because of our betrayal, the heavens and the earth were divided. The serpent grew in power and influence, becoming the dragon that we see in Revelation, distorting and corrupting God's earth into a realm of sin and evil. And oftentimes in the scriptures, the metaphor used to describe this realm of evil is the realm of Babylon. But through the mystery of the divine incarnation, God came in the form of a human being. And Jesus brought the hope for humanity 
and begin to usher in the kingdom of heaven, pulling heaven back down to earth, restoring it back to what he had intended it to be. But he didn't do so in force like the serpent dragon. He came as a lamb. He came in humility to sacrifice himself because of his great love for the world. So when we say yes to Jesus and become his disciples, we are given a rebirth. We're given a new citizenship, a new life. No longer are we slaves to Babylon. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, sons and daughters of the creator God. And this is really good news. But we humans can be fickle creatures. We have a short memory. And even though we've received this gift of salvation and this new call to partner with God in the bringing of heaven to earth, we don't always act like it. Sometimes we revert to our old ways of thinking and our old ways of doing. Why is that? Well, I want to introduce you to my friend. This is Phil. Phil is a complicated person. There are many parts that make up Phil's soul, and it's more complicated than this graphic, but this is a simple framework to help us think about it. Phil's mind has to do with his thoughts, his perspectives, his beliefs, his knowledge. Phil's heart is more about his desires, what he wants, and what he feels. Then there's his gut, his body. This is all about his reactions, his reflexes, his instincts. And all of these things make up Phil, which is a human soul. And Phil, like all of us, has lived his whole life in Babylon. And Babylon is a realm of fear, and so his soul has been conditioned to live in fear, to survive in fear. All of his thoughts and desires and instincts have been developed and they've adapted to survive in this environment. His thoughts are full of anxiety and despair. His desires are driven by greed and lust. And his reactions and his instincts are often self-serving and damaging to others and himself. But then something amazing happens in Phil's life. Phil encounters the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the salvation and the hope of the world. So Phil said yes to Jesus, to the gift of Christ's love and forgiveness. He's no longer defined by fear, no longer a slave to Babylon. He's now a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, defined by the love of Christ. He's been baptized, and he's committed to following Jesus with his whole life. So Phil becomes a disciple of Jesus, but he finds... He he struggles to live into the reality of the new creation and the rebirth that's been given to him. See, he knows he's been born again, but sometimes his thoughts, his body, his desires, they forget who Phil's been created to be. Phil wants to experience the full transformative power of God's love. He wants to see that in his life, but sometimes he reacts in a way that he knows he shouldn't. He says and does things he knows will harm others. He's impatient, he's short-tempered, he struggles with temptation, and Phil is frustrated. How many of us feel like Phil sometimes? Yeah, if we're honest. Here's the thing, Phil doesn't need to worry, and neither do we, because God is patient, slow to anger, gracious and forgiving. He's faithful to finish the good work that he began in us. I love that quote that Estefania shared, that again and again, Christ is coming after us. This good work that the Holy Spirit is finishing happens only through his power, right? It's the power of God's Spirit. God's Spirit empowers us to live into the realities of our redeemed lives. 
And the Holy Spirit indwells our souls and empowers us to live as citizens of heaven. Like we see in Galatians 5, right? All the fruit of the Spirit. Pastor James spoke on this a couple months ago. That life in the Spirit enables us to bear things like patience and kindness and goodness and joy and love. But Phil has to show up to grace. Grace has been freely given to him. He's been rescued and redeemed out of fear and evil and welcomed into the hope, love, and relationship of God. But being a disciple of Jesus is a lifelong journey, one that we have a part to play in. Right? Dallas Willard writes that grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. So Phil wants to know how to show up. Right? Sometimes there seems to be this barrier between what our mind knows and what our heart and our body know. Right? See, we here in the Western church, we're really good at the knowing up here part, aren't we? We're really good at the knowledge part. Many of us in this room can articulate the basics of the Christian faith, We can regurgitate what we know to be true about the Bible. But how many of us have experienced the full transformation of our desires and our instincts? How many of us have allowed the knowledge about God to grow into a knowing of God himself? How many of us have made space for the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out? This is why one of the values that we hold as a church is holistic spiritual formation. A truly transformed life is one that is daily laid at the feet of Jesus. The transformative power of the Spirit is a gift, but we have a part to play in opening and engaging with that gift. And one of the big ways that this takes place is in the rhythms and the practices and the habits of the Christian life. Look, any serious musician will tell you this. I'm not a serious musician, but any serious musician will tell you this. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. What we get in the habit of doing, what we settle into the rhythms of, will eventually train us into those patterns of whatever we're practicing. C.S. Lewis, the Christian theologian and author, he wrote this book in the 40s called The Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read it, it's a really interesting premise. Basically, there are these two demons, Wormwood and Screwtape. And Wormwood has been assigned a human, kind of like a reverse guardian angel situation. And his goal is to keep that human from experiencing the love and knowledge and presence of God. But he's new to the job, and so he writes back to his uncle Screwtape, who's a wise demon, and he's asking for advice. Well, early on in the letter... Wormwood discovers that his person has gone to church and accepted Jesus into his life. Oh, no. He's upset. So he writes to his uncle Screwtape. He's like, what do I do? And Screwtape says this. There is no need to despair. All of the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still with us. Christ saves us. But our habits... Our rhythms can keep us ineffective for what God wants to do in and through us. So what we need, what will help equip us for this conflict that we find ourselves in between the realm of Babylon and the kingdom of heaven, will be the transformation of our habits, both mental and bodily and spiritual. We need to accept Paul's invitations to the Thessalonians and become those who pray constantly. Now listen, if you're anything like me, at this point in the sermon, you're feeling a bunch of shame and guilt. You're like, man, I'm the worst Christian ever. I don't pray enough. I don't read my Bible enough. You're stupid, lame, kicking yourself, right? 
Maybe that's just me and I'm losing it. But I feel like this happens, right? Listen, the last thing that we want is to be shamed or pressured into good habits. <laughs> Shame and self-loathing are, are terrible motivators for habit change, and the results are not sustainable. Listen, Jesus' invitation is not that of a disapproving boss or a disappointed parent. Jesus is a good shepherd who simply wants us to experience the fullness of his freedom and his joy and his love. I love the words of Jesus in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I heard a motivational fitness speech one time. And the person basically started by saying, choose your hard. They said, exercising is hard. Being unhealthy is also hard. Choose your hard. The yoke of Jesus is still a yoke. We show up to work. But I tell you what, the work that Jesus has given us is a light yoke compared to the burden of slavery to this world. Picking up these spiritual rhythms and practices can be difficult, but they are easier than slavery to Babylon. And this is why we take up Jesus' invitation to take on his yoke. So holistic spiritual formation, I'll, I'll give a brief explanation of what this means. Holistic spiritual formation is the process by which we make room for the Holy Spirit to transform our whole being. This process is a movement from fear-centered reality to one centered around Christ's love. In this divine exchange, we are no longer ruled by our anxious reactivity. Rather, we are invited into loving response. So through this process of spiritual formation, it's the way in which the truth that we have heard in our ears, the, the, the beliefs that we hold, the knowledge in our thoughts and perspectives, they begin to work their way down into the rest of our being. They begin to transform our desires, right? Richard Foster says that it brings our wanters more in line with our needers. And it becomes so much a part of who we are that we don't even have to think about it anymore. Our reactions, our spiritual and emotional reflexes, our instincts, they, they make this way of life second nature. When I first needed to take a step back and take a deep breath, to remember to make a gracious and generous assumption about an angry person. Now it just happens naturally. Now I don't need to tell myself over and over again, don't lust after that person, don't lust after that person, because I've closed that door in my mind altogether. I've taken my thoughts captive. See, where my thoughts and perspectives once revolved around anxiety and despair, they are now full of hope and peace. Where once my desires were full of greed and lust, now I desire justice and connection. Where my instincts and reactions were once selfish and damaging, now they are kind and compassionate. See, no longer do my rhythms, my practices, my habits look like ones that belong to a slave of Babylon. They now resemble ones that are used to train up an agent of reconciliation, an ambassador of Christ's love in the world. Now my spiritual reflexes have been retrained so that I can show up with some agency in this conflict of the spiritual realm. One more time. We exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, 
Be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and good for all. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So as we approach Lent, we're going to invite one another into a commitment to really examine our habits and rhythms and ask this difficult question. Who does it look like these rhythms belong to? A slave of Babylon? Or an agent of reconciliation? If I really look at my life and I look at the patterns and the disciplines and the practices, what is becoming permanent for me? Lent is this... um, Oh, sorry. On that point. These were given to you on the way in. If you didn't grab one, you can grab one on the way out. But this is our fasting guide for Lent. Lent is this 40-day period of fasting and repentance that is intentionally set aside for this. Um, And it starts on Ash Wednesday. So I want to invite you into two things. First is to take one of these and to examine your life, to look at your rhythms and to consider what might God want me to set down for a time? What practices and rhythms might be helpful for me to pick up in this time? as we show up intentionally. And then the second thing I want to, oh, and by the way, I would, if if, if I were you, after you kind of check some of these things off, I have a group chat with a couple of my really close buddies. And we check in with each other daily on how we're doing, how our walks are, what we're praying for, what we need. I would recommend that you do this in community with someone so that you can be in step with one another. The second thing I want to invite you to is Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday kicks off this 40-day period of of fasting and prayer. And I love Ash Wednesday because it is a moment to acknowledge the joy of repentance. Repentance is a joy. We take the ashes that we burned from Palm Sunday the year before, and we use these ashes and we put them on the forehead in the shape of a cross to signify that without the love of God, that was exhibited for us on the cross, we are but ashes. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust without Christ's love. But with Christ's love, we have been redeemed, we have been made new. So we take a day to sit and reflect on who we are without Christ. And we repent and we turn away from those old ways of being and we step into the new. So if you'd like to participate uh, they call it the, the imposing of the ashes. We're going to be doing that Wednesday at 7 a.m. And then we're also going to have a prayer night at 6.30, which will have a lot of the same content, but it will be more geared towards singing and prayer and engagement. How do we retrain our spiritual reflexes to become the kind of people that God wants for us? The church calendar is providing us this wonderful opportunity to step into repentance as a joyful act of worship to turn away from the things we know give us death, and to turn towards the life giver. So I want to invite you to participate in those things. And know that it is a grace, and it is a joy. Again, we don't want shame to be our motivator into trying to create good habits. It's a gift. And we are able to experience the transformational power of Christ's love only by what he has done. And everything that he has done, he has done so that we might be close to him, so that we might draw near to him. 
So if you want to take out your communion elements, if you have yet to decide to follow Jesus with your whole life, I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm going to ask you at this time not to partake in these elements. This is something that followers of Jesus take very seriously as an act of worship. And if you at any point want to say yes to Jesus, that you want to experience this transformed life, like the one that Estefania was talking about, we would love to take that step with you. Even if you're visiting, can I be honest? Whether or not you come to Red Hills is really beside the point. We just want you to know Jesus. And so if you want to come up and say a prayer, we'll have a prayer team available here at the front. We'd love to take that step with you. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup, he said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And we're just going to take 30 seconds. And I want you to just sit with Jesus. I want you to sit with the Spirit. And I want you to ask this question. Maybe if you have this in your hand, you can look at it. Do my rhythms and practices, do my habits look like they belong to a slave of Babylon? Or do they look like they belong to an agent of reconciliation? And then ask the question of God, how do you want me to show up to this process and receive the gift and grace and patience of our Lord Jesus? Lord, as we sit and we reflect, we just ask that you would guide us, that we'd hear your voice, that we'd know your love, and that we'd be transformed from the inside out. It's in your name we pray. Amen.